Mr. Chairman, fellow speakers, friends. <laughs> I didn't know until uh, this afternoon uh, about the forum this evening, but one of my co-workers, who was very able and capable, Brother James, told me about it, and I couldn't resist the opportunity to come. I read in the newspaper recently, or at least before I left, some writer said one of my weaknesses is that I can't resist a platform. Well, that's, per that's perhaps true. Uh, whenever you have something to say and you're not afraid to say it, I think you should go ahead and say it and let the chips fall where they may. So I take advantage of all platforms to get off my mind what's on it. Also, they say travel broadens your scope. And recently I've had an opportunity to do a lot of it in the Middle East and Africa, and while I was traveling, I noticed that in most of the uh, countries that have recently emerged into independence, they have uh, turned away from the so-called capitalistic system in the direction of socialism. So out of curiosity, uh, I can't resist the temptation to do a little investigating wherever that particular philosophy happens to be in existence, or an attempt is being made to bring it into existence. Thirdly, when I, the first time I ever heard about the Blood Brothers, I happened to be in Nigeria, in West Africa, and someone, a doctor, uh, who had, a Nigerian, but who had spent too much time in Europe, <laughs> was the first one to bring it to my attention and, uh, and ask me about it. It didn't make me sad at all. Uh, and I don't see why anybody should be sad or regretful, or if that's the word, in any way, shape, or form, if such does exist. I recall in 1959, uh, when everybody began to talk about the black Muslims, all the Negro leaders said no such group existed. In fact, I recall on the Mike Wallace show, uh, Roy Wilkins was asked about the black Muslims, and he said he never heard of it. And then they flashed the picture of him on the uh, screen shaking hands with me. And I think one of the mistakes that our people make they're too quick to apologize for something that might exist, that the power structure finds deplorable or finds difficult to digest. And without even realizing it, sometimes we try and prove that it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't, sometimes it should. One person who believes that anything the black man in this country needs to get his freedom right now, that thing should exist. As far as I'm concerned, everybody who has caught the same kind of hell that I have caught is my blood brother. And I have plenty of them. Because all of us have caught the same hell. So the question is, if they don't exist, should they exist? Not do they exist, should they exist? Do they have a right to exist? And since when must a man deny the existence of his blood brother? It's like denying his family. <laughs> Excuse me if I speak a little loud here for a moment. If we're going to talk about police brutality, it's because police brutality exists. Why does it exist? Because our people in this particular society live in a police state. 
A black man in America lives in a police state. He doesn't live in any democracy. He lives in a police state. That's what it is. That's what's, what Harlem is. And I recall uh, this book that just came out, uh, written by Lieberman, Silberman, rather, called Crisis in Black and White. I advise everybody here, read it. Crisis in Black and White by S Charles Silberman. In my opinion, it's a good analysis of the problems that confront black people as well as white people in this country, and it goes right down to the root cause that has produced all these conditions, and it doesn't apologize for anybody. It shows where the fault lies on both sides. And this uh, book stems from an article that the author originally wrote in Fortune magazine, the March issue, 1962, at which time he stated that if something isn't done, to relieve the black people in these Negro communities across the country of the injustices and frustrations that they are confronted with every day, that this country would see a time when the Negro communities from coast to coast would become like the Casbah. The Casbah, I fortunately was able to visit myself two weeks ago. I visited the one in, in Casablanca and I visited the one in Algiers with some of the brothers, blood brothers. Uh, they took me all down into it and showed me the suffering, showed me the conditions that they had to live under while they were being occupied by the French, who were supposedly their friends, supposedly their protectors, supposedly their benefactors. They showed me the conditions that they lived under while they were colonized by these people from Europe. And they also showed me what they had to do to get those people off their back. The first thing they had to realize that all of them were brothers. Oppression made them brothers. Exploitation made them brothers. Degradation made them brothers. Discrimination made them brothers. Segre segregation made them brothers. Humiliation made them brothers. And once all of them realized that they were blood brothers, they also realized what they had to do to get that man off their back. They lived in a police state. Algeria was a police state. Any occupied territory is a police state. And this is what Harlem is. Harlem is a police state. It's the police in Harlem, their presence is like occupation forces, like an occupying army. They're not in Harlem to protect us. They're not in Harlem to look out for our welfare. They're in Harlem to protect the interests of the businessmen who don't even live there. They are, they're there... The same conditions that prevailed in Algeria that forced the people, the noble people of Algeria to resort eventually to the terrorist type tactics that were necessary to get the monkey off their back, those same conditions prevail today in America in every Negro community. And I would be, uh, other than a man, to stand up here and tell you that the uh, Afro-Americans, the black people, who live in these uh, communities under these conditions are ready and willing to continue to sit around non-violently and patiently and peacefully looking for some goodwill to change the conditions that exist. No, and you are out of your mind. If you think that our people, it's easy for you to live in another neighborhood and be sympathetic to the cause and then come in with some nonviolent tactics and think that we too will think that that's sufficient.
But if you had to live under those conditions and suffer what our people suffer, you would have gotten rid of that nonviolence a long time ago. Police Commissioner Murphy is a dangerous man. He's dangerous because either he lacks understanding or he has too much understanding and knows what he's doing. If he is functioning as he is out of, from lack of knowledge and understanding, he's dangerous. And then if he's doing as he is from, from understanding, he's dangerous. Because what he's doing is creating a situation that can lead to nothing but bloodshed. Almost every public statement he makes is designed to give the police in Harlem courage to resort to tactics that are inhuman. And in my opinion, this uh, type of incitement on the part of the police commissioner to make these policemen act other than they should stems from a lack of understanding of the true spirit that exists among the uh, young generation in Harlem today. They have been, uh, he must have been misinformed by some of that old generation who has been uh, ready and willing to suffer brutality at the hands of someone just because he has on a uniform. Nowadays, our people don't care who the oppressor is. Whether he has a sheet or whether he has on a uniform, he's in the same category. And you'll find that... <laughs> you will find that the, there is a growing tendency among us, among our people, to, to do whatever is necessary to bring this to a halt. And when you have a man like Police Commissioner uh, Murphy, and I'm not against the law. I'm not against law enforcement. I'm not a, you need laws to survive, and you need law enforcement officers to have an intelligent, peaceful uh, society. But we who have, have to live in these uh, places and suffer the type of conditions that exist from officers who lack understanding and lack any human feeling or lack any feeling for the fellow human being, we who have to suffer these things are beginning to see where we are not being considered at all when they select the type of persons that they send into Harlem to uh, enforce the law. So, I'm not here to apologize for the existence of any blood brothers. I'm not here to minimize the factors that hint uh, toward their existence. I'm here to say that if they don't exist, it's a miracle. The recent law that they passed that gives the police the permission to walk in anybody's house without knocking is an anti-Negro law in blunt terms. It's just an anti-Negro law. This law will probably do more to set off a... I don't... Nowadays, you're not going to have race riots anymore. You'll have a race war. <laughs> the day of race riots are outdated. A riot is something that's contained to a certain area. Nowadays, any kind of eruption like that that takes place, you'll find that it will have a chain reaction, it will, it will uh, pop up everywhere, and it won't be limited to this continent. Any effort today that is made to bring uh, massive retaliation against the black population of this country, you will find people who look like the oppressors also experiencing the, uh, 
also realizing how it feels to be the victim of mass retaliation in other countries. If those of you who are white have the good of the black people in this country at heart, I, my suggestion is that you have to realize now that the day of nonviolent resistance is over. That the day of passive resistance is over. That the day of peaceful demonstration, what kind of demonstration is a peaceful demonstration? <laughs> it's over. Anything, that's as anything that is so much an injustice that you are justified to demonstrate against it, then note the one who is the uh, author of the injustice should not is not qualified to lay the ground rules to you and me on how we're supposed to go about removing that injustice. I can't see it. The next thing you'll see here in America, and please don't blame it on me when you see it. <laughs> You will see the same things that have taken place among other people on this earth whose condition was parallel to that of the 22 million Afro-Americans in this country. The people of China grew tired of their oppress oppressors and the people rose up against their oppressors. They didn't rise up non-violently. It was easy to talk about the odds were against them, but 11 of them started out. And today, those 11 control 800 million. They would have been told back then that the odds were against them. As the oppressor always points out to the oppressed, the odds are against you. When Castro was up in the mountains of Cuba, they told him the odds were against him. Today, he's sitting in Havana, and all the power that this country has can't remove him. They told the Algerians the same thing. What do you have to fight with? <laughs> Today, they have to bow down to Ben Bella. He came out of the jail that they put him in. And today, they have to negotiate with him. Because he knew that the one thing he had on his side was truth and time. The time is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. And truth is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. You don't need anything else. So I would just like to say this in my conclusion. You'll see it. You'll see terrorism that will terrify you. And if you don't think you'll see it, you're trying to blind yourself to the historic development of everything that's taking place on this earth today. You'll see other things. Why will you see them? Because as soon as people realize that it's impossible for a chicken to produce a duck egg, even though they both belong to the same family of fowl, so-called fowl, a chicken just doesn't have it within its system to produce a duck egg. It can't do it. It can only produce according to what that particular system was constructed to produce. 
The system of this country cannot produce freedom for an Afro-American. It is impossible for this system, this economic system, this political system, this social system, this system, period. It is impossible for it, as it stands, to, to produce freedom right now for the black man in this country. It's impossible. And if ever a chicken did <laughs> produce a, a duck egg, I'm quite sure you'd say that it was certainly a revolutionary <laughs> this is the first time I've heard from Mr. Malcolm X, and I must say I'm very impressed. Um, uh, he funneled his address uh, toward a system uh, rather than a people. I would like to know uh, uh, whether he believes in segregation, as the newspapers seem to have implied that he does, or whether he will accept us white people standing alongside him in his uh, militant fight against injustice. Yeah. I think that the Afro-American has allowed himself to be tricked whenever he becomes involved in trying to debate integration, segregation, or separation. I'm for human rights. Anything that will enable the black man to become recognized and respected as a human being, any place on this earth, and anyone who is putting forth honest efforts to help the black man realize this particular status, we accept it. But we don't set, we don't accept any, if you excuse the expression, jive efforts. Uh, young man by the doorway there. Yes. I'd like to direct you something about the uh, speaking about crime and violence, crime somehow is usually associated with a lack of education or poor education. Now, it is said by a great many uh, people in the educational field that there seems to be a, a common uh, laziness, a lack of a sense of on the uh, Negro people in school. This is part true. And you won't find very many people who are Afro-American who will admit it. But if it is true, why? It is true that there is a sluggishness, intellectual sluggishness, academic sluggishness uh, in almost any Negro community, but this exists only because of the uh, result that has come upon us through years and years of slavery and being held down in this society. And this is why I made reference to the book Crisis in Black and White. This particular man uh, gives a very uh, good scientific analysis as to why there, this lethargy exists in the Negro community. It is something that has been created by the system. The system is designed to make the Negro uh, student lose his interest in education almost before he even gets started in school. And the parents, usually, who are also limited where education is concerned and have, who have run into so many barriers and obstacles despite the fact they had education, sometimes they ask themselves, what's the use? So as long as the system that we are in exists, and this system, the, the survival of this system, depends upon the continued exploitation of the black man in this country. The survival of it uh, depends upon the continued uh, uh, degrading of the black man in this country and the necessity of using us as the whipping boy and the alibi and the excuse. As long as this system exists, 
then you will find that our people will have the same attitude toward education. And, that, and they have a justified, I should say, they have, an, uh, they have an attitude that can be explained. But at the same time, the burden rests upon the leaders of the Afro-American community to try and instill within the uh, youth especially the desire to further their education because without it, you're not going anywhere on this earth today. Okay, right here. Now, what do you think of Commissioner Murphy being given a $10,000 raise by Mayor Wagner? <laughs> well, I think that he actually earned it. Any man, any man who has the nerve in 1964 to make the statements that Commissioner Murphy has made uh, in behalf of the interests uh, that he represents, they should pay him. <laughs> and they did. Uh, first, let's well, so, two people back there. A uh, uh, woman uh, all the way to the end there. Uh, one, uh, the same question, one to uh, Is that the question? Okay, well. They can be sort of like, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the Ku Klux Klan, the, Jan the John Birch Society, the Minutemen, all these organizations organized to defend the, what is it, this America's last line of defense or something like that. The problem is that in this country, every nationality can organize to protect itself to elevate itself socially or politically, or in instances as this new organization in Brooklyn to decide to set up its own vigilante system. Uh, you know, in, uh, in Harlem, the fact that as soon as the, even the Negro leaders recognized that the black Muslims were in existence, the fact that they believed in defending themselves, that's a crime. I mean, everybody can do it but the people in the black community. But I believe this. There is this need. As I mentioned earlier, I think the time has come when the community must organize itself to be prepared that when something happened to any individual in the community, they should turn out and be prepared to defend it, not in the sense of violating the law, but to demand that the law enforcement officers enforce the law instead of breaking it. I think this is a real need. We would call it self-defense, but Commissioner Murphy and Mayor Daly would call it uh, hate games. May I add up to that? Um, when you ask should the same thing be done in Harlem that was done out in Brooklyn? 
question answers itself. You don't have to tell black people anywhere in this country today what to do when someone starts uh, oppressing them. And this is the point that I'm trying to get across because if it's not gotten across in time, there's going to be some blood flowing in the street. As long as people think they can come to Harlem, and, th and whether there are cops coming to Harlem or somebody else, and think that they're going to, they can brutalize someone, and, and the one who is being brutalized is going to do nothing but turn the other cheek, they're going to be shot. So the best way to avoid the necessity of having to see someone else's blood flow is to let them know in advance that it will flow. And the, uh, I, if, it, if, if I had to go to jail in the morning, or had to die in the morning, I would die telling Negroes to arm themselves and retaliate to the maximum extent of their ability in the face of brutality, no matter what the odds against them were. They're going to die anyway, die like a man. Now, gentlemen, back there in uh, Corduroy, yeah. Uh, any of the speakers have any opinion on the uh, on the uh, proposals of how you will act? Uh, the plan on paper, it sounds good. However, there's a problem in both of the organizations, and it's going to really become clear who they can get to work. The people who are higher up in both of the organizations have a way of coming on to people out in the street that is alienating. In other words, uh, they are quite obviously uh, middle class. They think that all you have to do to make it is to follow certain rules and, and be nice to these people. And we're going to show you how to be nice to these people. Uh, that's a fallacy. That's wrong. It's dead wrong from start to beginning. Also, I think, and this is going to be a problem, if any of their youth work is going to be successful, it's going to be, have to be a lot more radical than anything they've planned. You know, the kids just are not going to be held back. If you talk about the history, the real history of the black man in, in this country or in the world, then they're going to see, once they start doing something, uh, that it's not going to be on the lines laid down by the HARU or ACT programs right now. Not verbatim. It was arranged, there was a luncheon arranged for uh, one Haru representative, the one who mentioned, I didn't forget his name, and Genius Griffin. Griffin said that he would like to talk to him because he was interested in curbing police brutality at home. And his only informants up to that time had been police. 
But if he could get some real data, he would go to Murphy himself. And this is how you represent it. We've been going around Holland, collecting statements from the people who live in Holland via a portable tape recorder. Took the tapes down and showed them that there were instances of people who had been arrested by policemen, instances of people who had been just beaten by policemen. This is not to mention the fact that Mr. Shabazz mentioned in the Lilithian article that Griffin had himself, when he came up there, seen them. There were just tremendous, overwhelming evidence that there was police brutality in Holland. Griffin went back to the New York Times office and he, this is creative journalism, he created an article, he created information, he distorted everything that this party reporter told him. He distorted the things that the tapes told him. He came with an article that dealt nothing, not at all, with police brutality. You know, that dealt with the so-called blood brother myth, to whatever percentage is real or imagined. I don't know if this was mentioned or not. In, 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 not in defense of Junius Griffin, but stemming uh, from a knowledge of how these newspapers function, usually they will get a Negro reporter to go into a, a, a community that they want to spread some propaganda about. And after he gathers the information and comes back and submits his article, it's some, oftentimes it's the editors themselves, not that Negro reporter. And after it's done, there's nothing he can say about it if he wants to keep his job. But I've experienced this. Oftentimes, they, and they usually, usually they use a Negro reporter because this lends authenticity to the story. Of course, there was no mention of this in the story, the article, that Gerald Griffin was Negro or, or white. Didn't have to mention it. Gentlemen, <laughs> <laughs> uh, back there with the paper in his hand, right? Mr. Director, and Malcolm X, in view of the fact that you state this political and economic system can never produce equal rights to the Negro, what political and economic system do I don't know, but I'm flexible. <laughs> All right, that's gentleman back there. <laughs> I would like to know, is there any organization that isn't flexible? In other words, what organization is doing something to bring back what we are really here on the search for? Both of those questions are still combined, and I know my brother here will good. But I would, I would like I would like to as, as was stated earlier, all of the countries that are emerging today from under the shackles of colonialism are turning towards socialism. I don't think it's an accident. Most of the countries who were colonial powers were capitalist countries. And, and the, the last what you, a bulwark of capitalism today is America. And it's impossible for a white person to believe in cap, uh, capitalism and not believe in racism. When you find one, yes, you can't have capitalism without racism. And if you find one and you happen to get uh, that person into a conversation uh, and they have a philosophy that makes you sure that they don't have this racism in their uh, outlook, usually they're socialists or their pol uh, political philosophy is socialism. Uh, go ahead. The question was, was there any 
group who wasn't flexible. Well, I'll put it this way. In traveling across country, various press conferences, reporter has invariably asked me, how do I differ from the Democratic and Republican Party? Now, on this question, I'm not flexible. I say there is no freedom, there is no justice, there is no equality as long as the capitalist system exists on the face of this earth. That the spokesman for this rotten system is the Democratic and Republican Party, and I am their avowed enemy. Now, tactically, I'm flexible. It is I work with anybody who's conducting a struggle against the system. But on that principal question, I will not cross class lines. I will defend anybody who's fighting against the system, whether I agree with what they're saying or not. And that's the most intelligent answer I've ever heard on that question. That's uh, so right here. Check a communist. It's right here in uh, New York City. We used to see uh, just a couple of days, uh, you know, months ago on a subway. You look on a subway, there's a subway poster there that says, Teach your kid judo, teach your boy karate. So it's the best Christmas present you can give him. Uh, uh, this is something wonderful you can do for your kid. Uh, uh, Paul Boutel back there. I would like to make a comment on the story that Okay. Uh, gentleman standing here. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to make a brief statement about Dr. Benjamin Spock's recent uh, statement about race. Uh, I don't know whether you people uh, 
Mr. Menard, but he made a profound statement. He said that the black infant is immediately disadvantaged by the fact <coughs> that from the moment he can understand and comes into a society, he's old enough to understand, he realizes from the conversations between black and white, in which he is the center of the nucleus, that he is regarded as different. And then the difference becomes one of, quote, inferiority. Therefore, that the first strike against them is when he is able to understand and start to associate with the rest of society. Dr. Benjamin Spock and several pediatricians uh, discovered this. <laughs> I can't resist stepping out of line to get on this point with, uh, that somebody else mentioned back there before about the kids in school. Uh, if, uh, that is, uh, if your kid, uh, say, has to go in, I mean, and, and see in his school, for instance, he picks up his reader, on, uh, see Dick and Jane in there and so on, with, with uh, uh, everybody in there except for that page on Little Black Sambo. Nobody in there looks like him. Uh, the, uh, this, uh, consider, I mean, that's just symbolic, I mean, but the whole school system is like that. All their books are like that. Everything they teach in the books about history, about government, about everything is like that. That uh, he, he may feel, I mean, they just uh, tear up the uh, books or something, pay no attention to it, and, uh, and, and that is part of the whole syndrome there that, that uh, where you get kids not being interested in learning. Am I missing anybody all the way in the back? I haven't seen any hands. Oh, okay, then. Uh, right here. Well, I would like to direct a question to Mr. Lee. I want to direct a question to Mr. Lee. I am a, a believer, and I think that, that the only way the black people in this country are going to be united is on a, on a system of black nationalism. I would like to know uh, an organization like CORE, you know, which is a which is a, an integrated organization. Do you think that it's possible to, to for you know to for people to me people are never united uh, for something. You said they pick out you know an enemy, and then you unite them around this enemy. And I would like to know: Do you do you believe that it's possible for an integrated organization working within a black community? considering the whole past background of black-white relationships in this country, for an organization like this to succeed, with, with, with the, the Caucasian members conspicuous in the organization. Uh, I don't know whether we're able to succeed, but I think we will make uh, progress. I think it's uh, very, very important, uh, not only just uh, uh, for Negro-white unity, but it's important, as you said, for Negro unity. Yes, I think they all—I think they all are intertwined. And I uh, don't have the answer as well as we will see, but I think we certainly are going to try, and we we'll really have to really step up our own uh, militancy and try even harder. At the same time, we are trying, uh, are organizing and trying to do even more so, and we have to step it up more so we, to plant ourselves in the community and organizing the, the black people because our struggle is there for the black people in the community. Try to alleviate the problem. And not just we're going to alleviate them, but them to help us unite. Uh, 
and then that in fact brings on you. That answer question? My answer. Comment on that. That's a very important question because it, it, it boils right down to the basic tactics that have been employed by the various groups during the past 10 years when the freedom struggle has gotten so much publicity. And if you notice, the outstanding characteristic of the, of the freedom struggle that's participated in by integrated groups has always been nonviolence. This is the, any time you have an integrated group, the emphasis is always upon nonviolence. Why? Because it has been uh, substantiated when you study the, 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 these inter integrated groups, usually the whites who get involved in the action where the Negro is supposed to benefit if they're successful, are more inclined toward taking a nonviolent approach. Well, this is what's causing the black people to become suspicious. And the groups that are ready to fight usually are those that aren't integrated. So all we say is this. If, and, and I say ready to fight, I mean ready to fight. We, we feel we've waited long enough. And we feel that all this uh, crawling and sitting in and crying in and praying in and begging in hasn't gotten any meaningful results. So the only way uh, in my recent travels into the African countries and others, it was impressed upon me the importance of having a working unity among all people, black as well as white. But the only way this is going to be brought about, the black ones have to be in unity first. And then those whites who want to help cannot help by joining and leading in the struggle, which they've uh, uh, tried to do in the past. If the whites are genuinely interested in the freedom of the black people in this country, you don't need to give us a crutch. The black man has to be shown how to free himself, and the white one who's sincerely interested has to back whatever that black group decides upon to do, not just because you say... When the Algerians were fighting for their freedom, many French fought on the side of the Algerians. On, by the same token, many Algerians fought on the side of the French. They're dead now. Uh, if, you, if you will be honest, you'll notice that, the, that there is a tendency right now among the, in the struggle of the black to become very suspicious of the white. So what future does this hold for the whites who are genuinely liberal. The only way they can have a future in the struggle is to face the facts involved and become just as militant, just as uh, uh, uncompromising when you're fighting on our side in behalf of our freedom as you would be fighting on your side if it was for your freedom. Don't always be... just like to add a little something to that and this is going to sound funny because most of us sort of feel white people have been very well organized for a very long time there are an awful lot of you know white communities that could stand quite a bit of organization and there'd be an awful lot of uh, there are certainly an awful lot of white people who instead of putting themselves on the line in a black community or to try it in their own community and 
then maybe they'd sort of get the feeling of what this real, you know, uh, hatred is. You know, uh, this is sort of hard to happen. We've had a couple of white people work in our office on Eighth Avenue, and they've been mistrusted all the way through. Not by some of us, but certainly by everyone out on the avenue. Just, just for the sake of efficiency, sometimes, or most of the times, it's the policy not to have white people working with you. Though there are exceptions. And there have to be the exceptions, but you can't, you don't always have the time to figure out who the exception's gonna be. And, well, this is, uh, it's difficult for me to say because I have a, a white uncle and a white wife, but that's the way things have to be, period. I think what is needed is a recognition of, of the needs of the struggle of the black people in this country. Every people must develop their own leadership. That's the key question here. What has to come out of this struggle is a black leadership based in the black community its own organization, and the best example I can think of is the one in Montgomery, Alabama, where they had one organization, they had one leadership, they had one program, and they spoke for the entire community. There were various nuances of differences within it, but they had a solid front in, the conduction, in conducting that struggle. Another interesting thing about this particular example the side that's played up is the nonviolent side, that is, played by the ministers. But now, I was down, and I happened to know that those young GIs told me, said, look at here, man. I said, I don't want any of those people, and I'm all for this nonviolent stuff, they said. I said, but now, if one of them woke up to me figuring I'm going to turn the other cheek, I got news for him. <laughs> and that's an important consideration. There wasn't any violence because they knew. And those young G.I.s didn't, didn't pick any bones about it. They had a defense guard around Martin Luther King's house in Alabama. And they told me, says, if anything happened to old man Nick, they can just... That's the way they felt about the real leader of that movement. But they weren't nonviolent. They wanted to obey the law and they wanted to do the right thing. But they know what the races down there will do and they were prepared to meet it. But the key question here is leadership. And the big problem now is the crisis within black leadership because of the brainwashing that a certain section of it has had down through the years. Now, it's not a question here, as I see it, of a rejection of whites who want to participate in the struggle. It's just a question here that for a people to achieve their own needs, they must have their own leadership they must develop it their own way, go through their own experiences, and once they achieve this, then they can work with anybody. But they must develop their own leadership first, and that's yeah. the key question. Uh, I've been asked to uh, make this uh, welcome announcement that the uh, Brooklyn Corps all right, is uh, organizing a patrol, a car patrol, to have a look at the cops. Uh, if anybody's interested in joining that uh, patrol to uh, do their civic, take care of their civic responsibilities, uh, uh, see me, I'll direct you to somebody here. Uh, uh, this young lady right here. I'd like to make a comment, Mr. Malcolm. Now, you're right, of course, the black people are in the worst. They have had the worst treatment. Uh, but isn't it also possible that if the white people, the poor people, the people down in my neighborhood, the white people, those that don't work, those that are on welfare, those that have nothing, 
get back together, too. And you help us, we'll help you. You help us get up there. You help us get rid of some of these people that are pressing down on us. No, I Aren't say you should be just you should be just as active in your neighborhood as we're trying as you have been in our neighborhood. Everybody's going for something. We alone. There are too few of us. There are too many men up there with all their cop cars and everything. That's what they're always telling you. Never let your enemy tell you how how uh, how many of you there are. Never let the man that you're against form your opinion. This is the trick that's played on everyone who's oppressed. The first thing, an occupation, uh, when you have a revolution in the country, the first thing you take over is the radio. And then you start telling the people, that everybody, the war is over. And, 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 and so all of them surrender. No, they believe that thing right there. And once they take that over, they start telling you uh, where you are and where they are, and you fall right in line. It's plain thought control. The majority of the American people aren't segregationists that the majority of the American people aren't imperialists, but the government is, the structure is, the power faction is. So what, how, how then do all the majority go along with it? Because those who sit in power over the television, over the radio, and over the press is constantly telling those who are the masses how free they are <laughs> and, how, and how, how this they are and how that they are. So the, a mistake is made on your part uh, when you think that white people suffer the same as black people. Uh, uh, or as many Jews will say, well, we're a minority too. Or the Irish will say, well, we used to be a minority. No one's a minority like we are. They, don't, they didn't need civil rights legislation to solve any other minority problem. They didn't need, they, they didn't, it didn't take a civil war to solve any other minority problem. It didn't take Supreme Court decisions to solve any other, uh, other, other minority problem or legislation. It takes none of that other kind of that action to solve the minority problems of these other people. The only real minority in America is the Afro-American. Now, when white people who are oppressed and poor, supposedly, but the poorest white person can go where the richest black person can't go. It isn't, it isn't only uh, 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 poverty of, uh, uh, in money that one that we're talking about, poverty in spirit, poverty in, in freedom, poverty in equality, poverty in human dignity. This is the kind of poverty we're, we're suffering from. So that the richest Negro in this country is still poor. When it comes to freedom, he's broke. When it comes to human dignity, he's broke. This is the kind of poverty we're talking about. So when you find white people who are poor, with all these doors that there are open to them, any door that you knock on, if you're qualified, it'll open. So when you find a poor white person, he's in bad shape. You didn't know. I believe the this, uh, the Freedom Now Party development in Michigan points out an example for all stratas of the population who are being pushed into a status of poverty. One, they must utilize their power, their political power, against the power structure. They can follow the example of the Freedom Now Party by organizing, putting up their own candidates, breaking from the two parties so that they can put somebody who represents them in their interests. And in doing this, you can see a unity take place between the two as equals in a political struggle against a common enemy. That's the key. Now, from the point of view of being concerned, I would say this. 
any black party in putting forth demands for better housing, better schools, better jobs, equal opportunity in training, and, and some sort of compensation for those who are being deprived because of automation or cybernation. Isn't this the problem that's confronting the farmers who are being pushed off their land, the miners throughout the Appalachia area? But they've got to do something about it politically. And the step is being made, being taken now by the black community who are pointing out the road. Follow their example. Yeah. I'm just going to take a few questions and then we'll get to the summary and the speakers can answer in the summary. I'll remind you that, the, uh, that uh, for a while we can... Uh, well, it's a pretty packed place, but uh, theoretically we can uh, speak and talk after the meeting. And uh, remind you of uh, meeting of uh, the candidates will uh, as a party for the candidate, excuse me, uh, for the presidential candidate Clifton D. Berry tomorrow uh, at this hall, uh, starting at 9 p.m. Uh, this gentleman right over here. Yeah, what do you want me to comment? <laughs> I mean, ask me a question about it, and I'll try and answer. But comment, that's a long letter. The entire letter. But it said that you had changed your views toward your hard racial line. Travel broadens one's scope. Anytime you do any traveling, your scope will be broadened. It doesn't mean you change, you broaden. <laughs> no religion will ever make me forget the condition of our people in this country. No religion will ever make me forget the continued biting of dogs against our people in this country. No religion will make me forget the police clubs that come upside our heads. No God or no religion, no nothing, will make me forget it until it's stopped, until it's finished, until it's eliminated. I want to make that point clear. Now, concerning the letter, in, uh, in Mecca, during the, this religious hajj, it would be an anthropologist's paradise, because never at any time or any place can you find a wider variety of specimens from the human family together at the same time than on this, than during this pilgrimage? Every type of human being imaginable is there. All colors, all sizes, all everything. As I pointed out in the letter, during the religious ritual, you eat actually with your hands all of the time. I was eating from the same plate with people who in America would be considered white, whose hair was blonde, whose eyes were blue, and whose skin was white. Yes. There were black people, brown people, red people, yellow people, and white people. Every specimen of humanity was represented there. But I noticed, one thing I noticed about these, they didn't act white. <laughs> they didn't act like the white people whom I had always known. In studying it, in any Afro-American who's involved in any kind of experience, the yardstick that he uses to measure it is racism. When you find a black man, a so-called Negro from America, any situation he comes in contact with, he's measuring it from the racist point of view because this is his experience. This is, his, this is the American experience for a black American, so-called black American or a black 
So call the mayor. <laughs> so I was, I was studying the situation, and I was asking myself, well, what is the difference between these people and those whom I just left in America? Something is different. And it was their attitude. It wasn't their color, because those were just as white as these. Their eyes were just as blue as these. Their hair was just as blonde as these. Yet they were different. And the difference was not in the color, but in the attitude. So I was searching to find an answer as to why, and I thought, thought I did. The fact that they had accepted the oneness of God, as does everyone who's on that pilgrimage, had the chain reaction effect of forcing them also to uh, accept the oneness of the human family. So that by accepting the oneness of God, they regarded all people, all persons, as part of the human family. They didn't uh, uh, judge them by the color of their skin, but the different complexions present only represented the different complexions that go to make up the human family. Not one being any better than the other, or one being any different from the other. And this, this was reflected in their attitude, because they looked upon all of mankind as a brother. They looked upon themselves as being nothing but another brother. They didn't have that air, I am white. White to them didn't mean the same thing that it means in America. When a, and when a man in America says he's white, he means something much different from what is meant by that man over there. When this man over here uses the word white, right in the sound of his voice, right in the essence of his being, is something that you and I are able to detect and I think you'll have to bear me witness. Over there I didn't find that. So I said to myself, and I wrote it back, that if Islam, if that philosophy can remove from those people who are supposedly white this uh, ingredient of racism that we have always discovered and felt the results of in this society, if it can remove it from that, perhaps if these people over here with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the white skin and the bad attitude... <laughs> can study uh, that philosophy and be affected by it in the same manner, perhaps they too can be saved from the disaster that they must inevitably uh, run into if they continue to practice or display the same racist attitude that we see reflected. Now, this is a change in my original attitude, then let it be. But I'd rather say that travel broadens one's scope. One more. Uh, this gentleman here, and uh, then we'll proceed to uh, summaries in the first order. Very fast. I think it's virtually impossible to convert uh, even uh, a size of the number. I think it will be repeated by the. Right. No, I'll repeat for you. I think it's virtually impossible to convert uh, a sizable number of uh, white Americans into the Islam religion. Okay. And don't you think that that uh, since you have said before, and this implied that it is this system that makes the white person act in such a way towards the Negro and, and uh, have such a bad attitude. Uh, uh, don't you think that, that, that uh, perhaps some other system uh, uh, will change this attitude and not a conversion to Islam, to the Islam religion necessarily? The question was uh, that uh, uh, because of the difficulty of, uh, of possibly converting any uh, sizable number of uh, Americans to Islam, that uh, wouldn't it be better to follow out the previous idea of uh, changing the system? Yeah. 
So in addition to that question, uh, five minutes on summary. Well, I, for one, have never made any attempt to waste my time trying to convert anyone uh, to the religion of Islam who had been so thoroughly uh, convinced that their particular religion in this society was the best one. I just stated it. They could take it the way they wanted. It doesn't move me. Doesn't it? Doesn't that's not my concern. If they accept it or reject it is not my concern. Uh, I believe that intelligent whites can see what's coming. They can see the handwriting on the wall. Intelligent whites can see what's coming, and what is coming is uh, not in their favor. And the only way they can avoid it is not to think that they're going to be a part of something which they are always going to be the captain of, or the head of, or the leader in. The trend in the East is toward a political philosophy called socialism. But at the same time, you'll find in Africa and Asia, the spiritual trend is toward Islam. Sooner or later... And America is more afraid of Islam than she is of, of socialism, communism, and all those other isms. Because Khrushchev and Tito and everybody else can come to this country and get better treatment than those who come from Africa and Asia representing this other philosophy. For myself personally, it's not my intention to bring up religion where, where the uh, uh, struggle of the black people in this country is concerned. We keep our religion in our mosque. This, ha this happened to be a letter that I wrote to someone and it was put in the paper. But we will work with anyone, with any group, no matter what their color is, as long as they are genuinely interested in taking the type of steps necessary to bring an end to the injustices that black people in this country are afflicted by. No matter what their color is, no matter what their political, economic, or social philosophy is, as long as their aims and objectives are, are, are in the direction of destroying the vulturous system that has been sucking the blood of black people in this country, they're all right with us. But if they're in any way that compromising, dangerous type of person, then we think that they should be dealt with. There were, uh, when the Algerians were f struggling for their freedom, some Frenchmen came and said, we're with you. Okay. The Algerians accepted them, but they first tested them. They said, prove it. <laughs> They put him to the test. I won't tell you what the test was, but they put him to the test. Nowadays, aren't when, 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 as our people begin to wake up, they're going to realize they've been talking about Negro revolt, Negro revolution. You can't talk that stuff to me unless you're really for one. I don't even want to hear it. Don't even want to hear it unless you're really for one. And most of you aren't. When the deal goes down, you back out every time. So, in, in essence, <laughs> in essence, the summary is that there's a problem that's confronting the black people, and until the problem of the black people in this country is solved, the white people have a problem that's going to cause an end to the society, system, and race, even, as you know it. The best way to solve your problem is to help us solve our problem. I'm not a racist. I've never been a racist. I believe in indicting the system and the person that's responsible for our condition. And the only uh, defense that uh, the people who 
in control of the power structure and system that's exploiting us has had is to label those who indict it without compromise as racist and extremists. Now, if there are white people who are genuinely and sincerely fed up with the condition that black people are in in America, then they have to take a stand, but not a compromising stand, not a tongue-in-cheek stand, not a nonviolent stand. If, it, uh, uh, if the Supreme Court has outlawed, just as an example, if the Supreme Court has outlawed uh, segregation, then any kind of action you take against the segregated system, the law is on your side. And anybody that stands in your way in any kind of action you take is against the law. Don't care how much a uniform they have on. Either the law is the law or it is not the law, and you have never put it to a test. When you approach it, you approach it like the law is doing you a favor to let you demonstrate. Either the, either the, either the Supreme Court is the law of the land, and, and, and segregation is criminal, and you are justified in taking whatever action necessary to bring a halt to criminal practices, or you don't even have any business being out there on the field calling yourself in the struggle at all.